Welcome to the ENA Podcast with your host, Dan Campana. This is the ENA Podcast, and this is Dan Campana, Director of Communications with the Emergency Nurses Association, welcoming everybody to our latest episode. Uh, It's the month of May, which means it's the month of Day on the Hill, and a topic we talk about uh, regularly at Day on the Hill uh, is the need for for changes when it comes to workplace violence uh, in the emergency department and how it impacts emergency nurses and everybody on the emergency care team. The May issue of the Journal of Emergency Nursing is uh, chock full of new research around workplace violence and a, a special issue uh, in that respect. And for a special issue, you need to have a special editor and someone who is really well-versed and an expert in workplace violence, and that is Gordon Gillespie. So I'm going to welcome Gordon to the ENA podcast this morning. Gordon, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Gordon, uh, let's just start at the high level a little bit. Uh, Workplace violence is a topic that you have uh, just really spent a tremendous uh, part of your career on in a variety of different ways. Uh, set the tone a little bit, the context a little bit. What uh, what are some of the things that you've done uh, relating to workplace violence, and and really why has this become such a a key area of focus for you over the years? So part of it um, probably starts with my story as being an emergency nurse, and I started. Um, I worked in several areas in the inpatient setting, intensive care, and I had ADHD, and it was really hard to focus in on the patients when you have the same ones day after day, and I really needed variety to keep my mind stimulated. So I ended up popping down in the emergency department. I think I started in a local community hospital that had 12 beds and I started there in January of 1998. And then from that point on, that became very clearly my clinical practice. But I was, since I was also in a smaller community hospital, I was also happened to be the only guy that was in the emergency department other than the orderly who worked until midnight. And in the building that we had, we had three inpatient floors. We had um, two long-term care units and then lots of outpatient departments. And most nights after midnight, the only men in the building were the security officer, myself, and our ED physician who tended to be a man. So anything that went bad, it was always early on, it was Gordon, this will be a learning opportunity for you to be able to experience emergency care in its fullest sense. There's a violent person coming in in handcuffs. We think you get to have that person. (laughs) And then later it was just... um, through the whole building, if they had a violent person, they would call up at the time was a code violent. Now we're trying to get to more plain language. And with that, it was, I would be called. And then also the maintenance man, because he would just happen to be a man. And then the security officer, and we became the violent response team. And that was just normal. And when patients would assault you, um, it was just normal as part of the job. It was like, you know, you eat lunch at two, you get hit at three, you go home at seven and you take your Tylenol or ibuprofen to cover from your injuries. And I would say in my early probably five or six years of practice, I was probably assaulted over a hundred times. And when I tell that to people, they're like, gosh, you must be a horrible person of people just to hit you. But a lot of it was just because we were in a, a smaller community, but it was an urban community. We were um, two blocks down from the, the county prison. So we had lots of violent persons that just came in, a lot of intoxicated people. City had two hospitals, one that all the vehicular trauma went to. And then all the people that were shot, stabbed, violent, they all came to ours. And most of those people tend to do those activities on night shift when I work. So I I got really just accustomed to it. And then when I finally went back and started getting a doctoral degree, my PhD, I was at the University of Cincinnati and I partnered up with a faculty member who was studying violence against ED workers. 
And we were talking about it, like, oh yeah, I, that's happened a lot. Like, why well, didn't really get why you would study it? And she's like, you seem kind of just okay with it. And I was like, well, you know, it's, it's every day. It's sort of like you eat, you take care of earaches, you take care of MIs, then you go and you get hit and you go back and just do more stuff. And there was one time when I was injured and we were so busy that the other nurses were like, we don't have time to fool with this. So I filled up my own triage. We were doing paper charting, filled up my own triage form, checked myself in. And finally I said, you know, I can't take my own blood pressure. Can someone just put the cuff on me? I did all my own vitals, everything else. And the physician's like, yeah, you know, you might have a wrist fracture. Um, so I had to put my own x-ray order in the computer, took myself to x-ray, came back. And then he's like, you need to take some ibuprofen. I said, I refuse to pull out the, the Pixis, the medication dispensing system, my own medicines. That just looks really bad. So they were like, we don't have time for this. So they did that. And so really it was, that's just part of the workflow. And it was kind of sad. They finally put the splint on me and I worked the rest of my shift and just kept on going. And then this, this um, nurse scientist, she's like, you can't be that way. You're part of the problem. And I was like, you're blaming me for being assaulted. No, she's, I'm blaming you for being complacent. And because of that perception, this will never, ever end. And then I was like, it became like this aha moment. And it was just like when the sky opens up and the sun beams down on you. And it was like, I looked up and I saw the answer that like, you can't accept this anymore. And that really just kind of launched my focus. And that was probably around 2005. And so it's like the last 18 years or so, it's really just become a fixation for me to address the complacency, but also to address it. And then partnering with her, um, I graduated in 2008 and I got my PhD at that time and became a faculty member at the University of Cincinnati College of Nursing. And there we started on a large federal grant. It's what's called an R01. It's the highest level funding you can get. And it's really focused on conducting research that's an experimental or quasi-experimental study. And so we ended up working with six emergency departments between Ohio, um, Ohio and Michigan at the time. And we implemented interventions at three of those sites. And then three were our control groups. And they just got a lot of attention from us, but they didn't receive the intervention. And the, the good part was that the intervention was working. Um, of course, the challenge happened. One of the hospitals ended up having an EMTALA violation for discharging a mental health patient that was violent who went to a different hospital that was also in our study. That caused some ruckus. The state came in and said, this one hospital has to implement an intervention, which would have been okay had they both been our intervention sites, but the intervention then went into our control site. And so then at the end of the study, the intervention didn't work as well, but it's because if both groups get the intervention, it's really hard to see a difference when they both had something. Sure. But it definitely showed that interventions do work. And for my take-home message, a lot of the nurses, they were speaking with the public locally. Um, and they said that, you know, we used to be able to just have to fight with our patients. Now we've been taught how with the three of us as women, they were more petite, that the three of us can res physically restrain this violent combative man without him being injured until security can arrive to start helping us to do other interventions to um, control the situation. So it was really nice that they saw ways to protect themselves and protect their clients. And I just kept going from there, studying, trialing different interventions, um, expanded into not just physical assaults from healthcare against healthcare workers, but also looking at those negative bullying type actions that start when you're in nursing school and they just kind of go out and you learn in nursing school that it's okay. We started nursing schools, then looking and doing education. I think I've done it to nine or 10 different nursing schools across the country, implementing interventions to stop the acceptance so that when they go in the emergency care, 
or they see things there, they no longer accept violence as part of the cultural norm. And that's a big problem that we hear about in different circumstances. And even this week, uh, you know, President Terry Foster, you know, pointing out that it, it should not be part of the job anymore, whether it's that lateral violence that you referenced, the, the bullying or the hazing, which, you know, was sort of a, a generational or cultural thing in some EDs. Uh, but also the external violence that comes from patients for a variety of reasons, comes from patient family members, it comes from, you know, a variety of sources. So when this idea comes around for the Journal of Emergency Nursing to do an issue entirely focused on workplace violence, uh, and uh, the editor-in-chief, Anna Valdez, and some of the others who have been involved with, with Jen over the last uh, couple of years, uh, turn to you, um, what, what did it mean to you to be, you know, brought into the fold and say, we know what your expertise is. We know the time and, and effort you've put into the research side of this topic, uh, but we want to help you have you help shepherd in a, an entire issue that is focused on a variety of different research topics on workplace violence. Uh, what, did, what did that mean to you to have that uh, that opportunity? Um, first, I do want to give a shout out to Dr. Jessica Kastner because she was the editor in chief at the time and she did the actual invite for me to become the special guest editor. And then when Dr. Valdez took over as editor-in-chief, she allowed me to continue doing the work, which I greatly appreciated, because um, there could have been a chance where the articles would have been spread out over many issues. But um, the both of them together really helped to create this special issue or, or give me the freedom to have the editorial discretion on what was accepted or not. For me, it's like a crowning moment of my career. I've done a special issue for another journal that was an interprofessional occupational health focus journal, which was great. And there, like a lot of the authors were from the CDC, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. We had other authors from across the country, but it was very broad and it wasn't focused on emergency care. It was, it was focused on healthcare for sure, but not necessarily emergency. This one was just really exciting because I know there's a lot of work being done. I've had people have asked me for copies of tools or um, copies of papers in the past. I've met with people at conferences and like, tell me some things that I can do from a clinician perspective. And what I absolutely love is that we put the call out and we ended up having now there's seven research articles that are published in it. There's eight other kind of clinically oriented between case reviews and injury prevention, practice improvement, along with four columns. And all of that kind of compounded together is just this menagerie of articles. We have people from five different countries, including Australia, United Kingdom, South Korea, and Turkey. Lots of professions, including pharmacy, medicine, public health, paramedicine, occupational health, and nursing. So it is still, it's, it's created in a journal that's specific for nursing. It's still this interprofessional, international articles. And I think it just goes to that the problem is still there. And um, there was an author about 40 years ago that first cited workplace violence as a construct. Like at that time, the author says it's already been there, but that's the oldest article I can find where they're saying, this is why it happens and this is what you have to do over 40 years and it's just getting worse. It's acknowledged, but it's worse. And so I love the fact that I had this opportunity to focus an issue. And um, in my, and as a, an academic, what I have learned is that when you have a special issue, the easiest pathway for nursing students and others, if you have to do a class paper on say a topic of workplace violence, you can go and like pull off a, like if you still have a library at your, your university or your, your employer, and they still have paper copies of a journal, you can go and pull out 19 copies of different ones and find the article, or you can pull out one and you've done all of your work in five minutes. Right. And so I really believe that when you have a special issue like this, 
on any topic, you're going to get a lot more of attention to it. And when one article is cited, they tend to cite a lot more of them. So that helps the academic careers, say, of all the authors or the clinical practice careers, but it also brings a lot more attention to the journal. So in terms of just helping that image, it's great. But on a personal, truly personal level, which probably goes more towards your question, is that having this compendium all together in one issue, it allows our members to keep that one issue on a bookshelf or take that one issue into their chief nursing officer or the president of their hospital, chief medical officer, and say, you know what, I've been saying that's a problem. You haven't been quiet, haven't been able to articulate it the way that I really want to for you to get it. Well, here's a copy of like 15 articles that can help explain it to you. And so it just becomes this, oh my God, like I've heard about it as say a CNO who maybe is not based in emergency care. And it's like, I've heard of this. I didn't realize how bad this was. And look at this, it's a problem globally. It's a problem with multiple professions. So it really helps to, I think, tell an excellent story. And what I really, really love is that many of the authors don't just say, it's a problem, it's a problem, it's a problem, but it's like, here's things we're trying to do. And one of the authors, the intervention didn't work as well as they would want, like they didn't have a significant effect, but the article is so well-written. It's just incredible because they walk through their processes and just because it didn't work at that single emergency department, nurses across the globe can go to this and be like, you know what, I'm going to try to replicate this quality improvement project in my home. And there's a good chance that it might just work. And so that's what I just really, really love about this compendium altogether. And you, you hit on a point that I was going to ask you about, which is, and, and when you're talking about how, you know, decades ago, there was identification of workplace violence as a concept, as a, as a real thing. And here we are, and things have not improved. The focus can't always just be on the negative and what the problem is. There has to be a look at um, what solutions are out there and what are people trying? So uh, that was a really uh, important thing to bring up, which is there's a study in here that says, hey, it didn't quite work out here, but you're at least creating a roadmap that others can look at and go, well, maybe I'll try that here. Maybe we'll have success or maybe we can try some of this and we'll adapt it. Looking at some of the, the key papers that are in this, uh, in this issue of the journal, um, it is, you know, just at the high level, you know, as a non-clinician, but someone who's familiar with the topic, uh, you're, you're looking at how it's reflected in, in, in EHR data. What can you what can you pick up from there? Um, what are what are strategies for meaningful change? Looking at uh, risk assessment tools, um, using you know staff duress alarms. I mean, they're, they're, just on the surface, it seems like there's a very um, diverse but yet cohesive look at this topic in a way that um, it can be a roadmap for change. So, Gordon, before we started, you mentioned that. Uh, this was a year in the making. This is not uh, something that happened overnight. As guest editor, do you sit back at the start of this and go, this is what I want this issue to look like? Or did it really kind of take shape based off of the submissions? And then you started to get that comprehensive view of what you thought this issue could look like. It was a mixture of both. Um, so it's kind of because I, like I said, I was a guest editor for a, a journal called Work, which focused on prevention rehabilitation and assessment. In that journal, we had a conference in 2012 that was actually co-sponsored by the federal government, CDC, NIOSH, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And it was also co-sponsored with the Emergency Nurses Association. And we hosted that national conference in Cincinnati. We ended up having people from multiple countries that actually attended in person, lots of different states. I believe Anne-Marie Papa was one of our kind of our ENA rep that was there that year. But with that, like that became very easy because I watched the presentations and I was like, 
That's an excellent topic. So I invited people specifically, like reached my hand out and said, I want you to be part of this special issue. And then from that, people either did or didn't join. And that's where that took off. So I had that idea from for this journal issue, but I didn't have a conference format. But I I had a I have a large network of people that I've met over the years that are focused on violence. So I started reaching out to them because I know their work. And with workplace violence, there's what's called a typology. And I believe it was established by the Iowa Injury Prevention Center years back. And the typology is basically it's related. Uh, the typology of the four types, it's related for the person doing the aggression to the relationship to the employee. Where type one, it's a community-based violence. That's where you might say be in a, you're in your parking lot, some guy or woman's walking down the street and they try to rob you or you go into a retail pharmacy. They don't have a reason to be there other than to do something bad. And when I used to work at one of the children's hospitals after I left my um, my initial practice area, there'd be patient or not patient, but people would kind of come through and they would like get into the triage area, take the nurse's purse and take off. Like that would be type one. Type two is the one that we talk about the most. And that's the violence from patients and visitors against healthcare workers. They have a legitimate reason to be there, but they're doing something that's really bad for us. And then type three is coworker or lateral. A lot of it's like lateral violence, like bullying, aggression, but it's any current or former employee that's enacting violence against a current employee. And then type four is the intimate partner relationship violence, where you have, I'm as the worker, I have a boyfriend, girlfriend, other significant other that's coming in the workplace. They may hurt a lot of other people, but they're trying to get to me and cause harm. So my goal was to have people from all four categories. And so I kind of searched. ENA definitely did a huge participation, kind of pushing the message out. Elsevier did a pushing the message out. But then I did some just kind of cold calls, so to speak. And so like, I know you're doing area work in this area. Do you have anything related to, to the emergency care setting? And if not, you know, do you know anyone? And can you kind of help me get connected? So I started that way. And it really was trying to push a steam engine, a huge train up a hill all by myself and being this weak guy with no arm strength. And I'm like trying to push and it just like, I wasn't getting anywhere. And then by late fall, then it just started kind of coming in and it was just like, wow, this is really picking up good steam. And I think it was as some of the articles kind of got published ahead of print, then people probably like, oh, here's an interesting article. And they find out that, oh, there's a special issue. And then it was like, oh, let's get our act together and get going. But um, by the end, it really is like whatever you have, like you go in with your ingredients, but if you're missing something, you don't have any oil. Do you have any applesauce? Like you kind of make replacements. Yeah. And so the nice thing I really liked is that Dr. Valdez gave me the leeway to really look at the journal because we have a normal, um, like we've kind of evolved on how it was research at the front and other articles at the end. And then over this last fall, it flipped clinical in the front research at the back so that you could really focus on those immediate translatable, transferable pieces first. But even with that, there's a style. And so, and I wanted to buck the style. Like, I know this is the norm. And so when you kind of look at the table of contents, there's like clinical articles and then some other stuff. And then it says clinical again. We were supposed to put them all together. And I'm like, but I wanted, I wanted to read from front to back. It's kind of like the colors of a rainbow. You don't just like go red and then you have blue. It's like the color rainbow, they gradually change colors and they fit into, they fade in and out with one another. And that's what I really wanted with this issue is that you, as a, if a person that's not into research or they're new in a workplace violence and you need to kind of just walk in slowly and get deeper and deeper, you can start front to back and read it. And so it really was, once I was done, this is how I really want it to look because it goes with complexity. It goes with typology. There was a lot of kind of science put into it. And so at the end, 
probably the really short answer is you get what you get, but I am incredibly happy. And I think my cake just tastes wonderful. <laughs> one of the, uh, the hard part when you ask a question like that is now I'm going to go into the next one, which is, do you have one that really stands out to you of all the pieces of this, of this cake, if you will, uh, that really stands out to you as being either most impactful or that you're most proud of that you were able to include this in the issue? Um, so I'm going to rifle through my papers here because I don't make sure I get the right one. Um, there were really kind of, so I'm just going to say there's kind of three that I would direct people to. And one is by um, Dr. Dunseth Rosenbaum and her group. And they looked at strategies for meaningful change with workplace violence. Then there was a second one by Dr. Call and her colleagues. And they were, that was the staff to rest alarms, which I find just fascinating because I'll have a little anecdote about why that one. And this other one, um, there was one by Dr. Lee who looked at kind of electronic health data, kind of like how to view pred predictions. And the kind of reason I bring up the one by Dr. Carr is because I remember being in the emergency department and we had, um, uh, we were carrying around little things on our badges that are around our neck that you could kind of click. And it was like, they kind of thought of it as a help button but they didn't really use it that way. And when we kind of looking at it, we're like, well, we have the method to call for help because at this particular emergency department, I won't name where it was, but I was one of the emergency nurses there. And sometimes the way the room design, the door is on the far left corner, the panic button you will pull is on the far left corner. The bed is kind of the way it was situated. It was very easy to get stuck in a room with an angry parent or an angry visitor and you can't get out of the room and you can't call for help because the walls were really thick and because there was a lot of people that, if you're kind of crying and such, you couldn't, because babies cry at 80 decibels, which is really, really loud. So you need thicker walls in this particular emergency department to kind of control for noise, which is a it's a um, stimulator for further aggression with people that are kind of on the edge. And so you can get stuck and you can't get out and like, well, how do you call for help? And we didn't have any kind of portable phones other than unless you had your own personal cell phone. And then it was like, you know, we've got these little buttons, so you could click it. And it, at the registration desk or the, we call it team coordinator desk, it would set off a little screen that flashes, but because they didn't like when it made the noise, they turned the volume off. Wow. So you're there potentially calling for help and there ain't nobody coming because no one's paying any attention. So somebody walks behind and says, what's that flashing on that monitor? Oh, I think that's just like Gordon's in a room and needs something. I don't know. <laughs> and so you may or may not get help. And so yeah. it was like, how do we retrain everyone that you only push it for an emergency and should be a panic button. And so the really, the nice thing about it is Panic buttons have really great utility, but you really have to also know, because what's a panic button? If you go into the room, you go bursting in, like say it's a, a code blue or it's an um, emergency medical, you could run into a fist. You open the door up and then boom, because you, you don't know what you're going into. So you really have to also train when you hit a panic button. Do you only use it for violent situations or do you use it for emergency situations? And if it's an emergency, it's when I learned when I used to run on a transport, because um, I used to also work in a mobile intensive care unit transporting critically ill and injured people across the city. There, I really learned really quickly, it's always about scene safety first. You don't enter anything, no matter what you see happening, there's a life that's about to die. If you don't get there, you have to stop. You have to look around. If you don't, now we have two victims, two trauma people. And it's hard when you just want to jump in and rescue and adrenaline's going. So when you push that panic alarm, you can't just run into that room. You've got to stop, assess the room, and then go in. It may only take you one second, but you've got to stop to protect yourself. And I just love that in this article, like there's just that great focus in terms of really trying to look at scene safety and how do you really um, rethink on how to protect one another. 
what I'm hearing too that I like is there's a combination of practical and you know, process driven and all of this obviously is evidence-based because of the, the work that's gone into it. Um, research is something that we hear from time to time. Nurses are, you know, it's intimidating or it's a lot of, you know, there's a lot to, that goes into making sure that you're getting the most out of what you're reading and what you're seeing, but everything across the board from the papers down through some of the other things that you mentioned that are in the issue. Uh, it just feels like there's a lot of things that are easy to digest and, making it in that format change that you talked about, you know, being something you can read cover to cover and you're getting the most out of it by having that roadmap laid out. Uh, how much did that, I mean, you mentioned that you really wanted to kind of blow up the format just to make it that kind of ease of reading. Um, but, you know, for the everyday nurse who doesn't, you know, uh, their time is limited, their energy may be limited to get into this, but uh, I feel like you, you've kind of set them up in a way that this is going to, uh, make it convenient, make it accessible, and make it something practical that they can carry forward to their boss or to anybody that really they want to share the importance of what's happening around workplace violence, but also that there are things out there that are helping guide for change. Yeah, like, and I kind of look at some other things. Again, it's like trying to go for a more um, easily digestible, because for those that are intimidated by research, like I absolutely love research. I have a research degree had lots of funding in the background to study violence. And for me, it's kind of like playing in a playground. I just have a lot of fun. Other people, I think when they hear about algebra or geometry, like those things excite me as well. And other people are like, yeah, don't bring anything statistics around me because I don't do numbers. And it's like, yeah, everybody kind of does things like even with theory, but there's a way to like bring people in and then like it, you can become engulfed with it. And as you kind of increase that complexity, you realize that, oh, I really do get this. It's not as intimidating which is really important if you want people to adopt practice changes, having these papers in that particular order, I think will really help with the adoption. And like some of the papers they talk about, um, I think it was Cavalan et al. Um, and again, I, I apologize for the authors. They ever hear this and I say their names wrong. I don't know them personally. So I'm only attempting to pronounce the names correctly, but for Cavalan and her group, like they had a, a risk assessment tool. And there's things that if you do have risk assessment tools that you can build into your electronic health record, it helps set off alerts because when in my personal experience and doing training over the years, if you go to a person and say, who's going to be violent, it's very quick. They're going to say the person who's intoxicated, person with mental health disease or disorder, like schizophrenia. And I'm like, well, what do you do when you get around them? Like how close do you get in their face? They're like, oh, no, no, we don't get in their face. Like we maintain basically what I call spitting distance. You want to maintain spitting distance because if you tell people three feet, four feet, six feet, they don't really know what that is. Sure. But if I tell people maintain spitting distance, they have a visual image. Oh, that's this far. Because that's also if they swing or they kick at you, if you can't be spit on, you probably can't be physically hit as easy. Or at least you have time to get out of the way if they're throwing an object. But when you start looking at some of our early research with uh, my team and my colleagues at University of Cincinnati, we found that about half of the violence that people had physical assault was from those typical things like mental health disease disorder, um, dementia, those type of things. But the other half were people that came in for things like abdominal pain, earache, medication refill. Essentially, a lot of those people are also your fast track, your quick through in and out. It's like, why would they act that way? But a lot of times it's like, you know, I need my 500 tabs of some narcotic. Well, we'll give you a five or maybe we'll give you none. And it's like, how dare you? I want my medicines. Or if sometimes it's like, I need a prescription for an antibiotic, but you don't have anything that you need antibiotic for. Well, I've got the sniffles. Well, you need to go home and like drink some hot tea or <laughs> some lemon or whatever. 
You need lots of tender, loving care, but you don't need antibiotic. And they become upset and they hit you. And with those patients, as you look at it, they got hit because they were very close in proximity because that person's not going to become violent. That person's kind of what you might put in quotation marks, they're normal. But in reality, when you start thinking about situational crisis, every patient can become violent. There's definitely predictors and using some of these screening tools help to identify people that are on that escalation curve where they're more likely to become violent. But I think people need to be thinking about like universal violence precautions. And I talk a little bit about that in my editorial. And it's essentially it's every person has the capacity to become violent. Every person that's a nurse knows what's right and wrong. But most of those nurses, if you ask the right questions, will raise their hand and say, heck yeah, I'll hit that person. Heck yeah, I'll shove that person out of my way. And in my editorial, I provide the example that they've got you've got your kid that's five or six years old that you heard got hit by a car at the bus stop or somewhere. And they're in the pediatric trauma center and you walk in, you want to get to your bedside for your, your baby. And they say, no, you're just going to wait a little bit. It's like, what are you willing to do to get back to your child that you don't know if they're alive or dead? Like you are panicked. People are willing to do lots of things to get back there and that's violence. And they know that it's wrong, but it's like situational crisis will always occur. So trying to use some of those smart tools, like having screening tools or looking at predictors with um, big data, those are excellent ways to use the health system to be able to build in prevention strategies or build in strategies to help you identify and better protect yourself and know when to be a little more hesitant and be a little more cautious. But I think it's also just knowing that everyone has that capacity that kind of changes. Like, do you really want to engage with that person? Do you really want to respond back to that comment? Or you just want to say, my goal today is to live. My goal today is to get home to my family. It's not to win this argument. It's just to live and not to be not to be injured. And that's kind of how, once I kind of got that mentality in my emergency department practice, my injury rate went down. And I just learned like, you know, some people, they're just going to express their emotion, acknowledge it, reset behaviors, talk about expectations. If violence happens, we have a debrief later with the patient and say, you know, I get why you acted that way. That must've been really horrible. And that was the only way you felt you could be heard going forward. Here's a much better way for you and for us, because we can't tolerate this behavior. So let's talk about what got you here. And let's talk about how to keep you from getting here the next time. To wrap up, I guess the biggest question now that this is, is fully baked, it's put together. What is the type of feedback that you'd love to hear after all of this hard work? So the number one thing I would want to hear more than anything else is somebody saying, Hey, Gordon, I read this article by so-and-so and and we put that same thing into RED and it worked. Even though if it didn't prevent all of it, if it at least reduced the incidence or reduced the prevalence, reduced those number of times somebody was injured or left the emergency department because they just can't take it anymore, that would be my crowning moment. Or if people said, I read some of this, I never thought about how it impacted employees, even if it was just verbal abuse. I didn't realize it could really hurt them emotionally We're now caring for each other. We're now saying things such as, how are you? Instead of what happened, like, what did you do? Instead of accusing others, acknowledging the fact that regardless of who's to blame, that we're human beings and that we care about each other and we're implementing things to support our coworkers and we're implementing things based off of this research, based off these practice articles on how to make the environment safer for everyone. Well, Gordon Gillespie, the guest editor for the May issue of the Journal of Emergency Nursing with its focus on workplace violence, uh, certainly a lot of work 
um, and passion that went into this, uh, both by you and, and all of the uh, the members of the Gen editorial team and, and all of the uh, uh, the writers and and, uh, and researchers who submitted. Um, I, I can tell in your voice, just you know, obviously you're very passionate about all this, but you're also really excited for everybody to get a chance to uh, to see the issue and to be able to um, you know take away what they can from it to to help drive some change in their in their corners of the emergency nursing world. It sounds like. Yeah, I just want to say um, thank you again for this opportunity to ENA and the, along with Dr. Jessica Kastner and Anna Valdez, I also want to thank Annie Kelly. Um, Annie works with the journal and she's and she's just amazing. And if it hadn't been for her, I could have lost my mind over this last year. And she helps helps with me and the authors to make everything happen and it to become out like this perfect volume. And ultimately, everybody who uh, is interested in, in seeing and partaking in this issue, you can go to genonline.org uh, to see the electronic version and the print version uh, obviously goes out to uh, all ENA members. And um, certainly this is one that I think people are going to want to pass around. So Gordon, I appreciate you taking some time to be on the podcast today. Give a nice little preview of what everyone can expect when, uh, when they get their copy or if they, they jump on genonline.org right now. Uh, to see what uh, what's in there, and um, so I appreciate your your time today, and, and uh, congratulations on on the issue. Thank you so much. That'll do it for this episode of the ENA podcast, and I'll, I'll mention it once more. GenOnline.org is where you can find the Journal of Emergency Nursing online, and uh, you can see every issue, uh, but certainly the May issue uh, with its focus on workplace violence and all of the things that uh, Gordon so uh, so articulately shared about what uh, what you can expect in reading it and uh, certainly what he hopes uh, people will take away from it. Until next time, I appreciate everyone for tuning into this episode and I look forward to you joining us uh, next time on the ENA podcast. To learn more about ENA or to become a member, visit ena.org backslash membership.